You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you. Mark chapter 10 is where we are. So it would really serve you to have a Bible out and open uh, to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10. And while you're um, turning there, let me cover just a couple of family issues. Um, one is, I don't, I don't know if Valentine's in the room this hour, but I wanted to just say a quick thanks to Valentine for preaching last week and putting the hard work into service. And so Valentine, wherever you are, I don't see you right now. Yeah, thank you. I think that's worth a uh, quick applause. And then secondly, uh, I want to just take a moment to correct something um, in our, with, kind of within our church family. For the last four years that we have kind of been getting a church off the ground and all of that, we have done a very poor job of creating like a structure and like a formalized way for us to pray for one another across kind of the whole span of our church family. I think our home group leaders have done a good job of trying to keep up to date with the people that make up our church family. We've just done a very poor job of creating proper systems and structures for us as kind of a corporate church family to pray for one another. And so first of all, I just want to say as one of your pastors that I think that is the the result of like a sinful neglect rooted in things like pride and self-sufficiency, among other things, that first of all just needs to be repented of for, you know, to you as, as our church family. That I think it is sinful that, that we haven't done a good job at that. And today we're seeking not only to confess that to you, but actually take steps in correcting that. And so I want to make sure you're aware of what, what we're trying to do to correct that thing and trying to create a better mechanism for us to be able to pray for one another. Um, at the back left of the room, if you're looking at it from my perspective, so back over in that corner, you'll see a table. And that table will have a couple of people at the end of our services. And it's really for two things. One, it is if you come in to a church service like this or a Sunday morning like this, and you just feel like life is totally beating the mess out of you, which is how a lot of us walk in on a Sunday morning. We want to make sure we provide a place for you to be prayed over and to be prayed with. And so we'll have people at the end of both of our services back there um, that would love to do that for you, to pray with you and, and just acute needs in your life right now. And secondly, on that table, there will be a card like this. And by the way, we also have a table right on the other side of that wall, like across from the book table, just right there. That will also have these cards and some baskets on them. And basically, it's a, it's a place for you to be able to write prayer requests and then for you to check public or private. And if you check public, um, that team of people that are going to be serving us through kind of coordinating all that will keep an up-to-date list that they will post on the city so that you will have up-to-date ways that you can be praying for people across our church family. And if you check private, it will not go on that list on the city, but will be sent to our staff and, uh, and pastors, our elders at our church, so that we can pray for you. And so I, I just want to take a moment to encourage you to do that, to help us get that started today. If you need to be prayed over, it would be great for you at the end of our service to, to jump back there. Or if you have a request that you would like for us to be praying for, it would be great if you would take one of those cards, write that, put that in the basket, and they will start organizing that and making sure that our church family knows how we can be praying for you. Okay, so that's that. Now we're into Mark chapter 10. And, uh, You know, it was interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to one of my friends and I asked my friends, you really need to be praying for me, our church. And there's a couple of reasons why. First of all, that was the week that we were preaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And that's like one of those sermons where you're not really sure if you have a church left after that week. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and then I say, but it's not just that. I'm going to be off a week and then I'm going to come back and preach about money and possessions. So however likely it was that our church was going to blow up after the first one, it's like double the chance after that one. And so in light of that, I, I want to just preface, a, you know, this sermon on money and possessions with a couple of things. And here's the first one. I want you to notice, first of all, that we're preaching through Mark verse by verse. And this is what Mark is putting before us. We aren't like randomly selecting things here. We're just preaching through a book of the Bible. And these are the stuff that the Bible talks about. So we're talking about them. I just think about what happens in this passage in Mark 10. If you heard Valentine read that earlier, the guy comes up to Jesus and asks a great question. How do I get saved? How do I get eternal life? What do I do for that? And it's ironic. Jesus doesn't like go to Romans and like lay out the Roman road for this guy. He instantly starts talking about money and possessions. Now just see the implication of that. Here's the implication. If you're going to become a Christian... There has got to be talk on money and possessions. 
Becoming a Christian means that part of how we see money and possessions and how we lean into money and possessions, that changes. There's a difference. So so if you want to become a Christian, it's going to mean something for how you deal with money and possessions. So that's preface number one. These are things the Bible talks about, so we're talking about them. Secondly, like marriage, divorce, and remarriage, allowing the Bible to speak on money and possessions is absolutely essential in our culture. As sick as our culture is when it comes to marriage, divorce, like that big thing as sick as we are in that area, we are, in, as, as a culture, we are even more sick in the area of money and possessions and the way we view money and possessions. That greed or materialism or money sickness, whatever you want to call it, all of those words mean the same thing. It's an, an inordinate desire for money and material things. Greed in our culture is so rampant that we can't even recognize it. It's so everywhere and so normal that it's almost impossible to discern. See, here's the difference between greed and adultery. Adultery is one of those sins that you never wake up in the middle of the act of adultery and ask this question. I wonder if I'm committing adultery right now. That's not how it works. You know what you're doing. But greed does not work in black and white sort of ways. Greed works in some sort of shades of gray where you can be right in the middle of it and be absolutely convinced yourself that you're not committing it. This is one of the most difficult things. It's so hard to recognize. And listen to how Randy Alcorn in his book on money and possessions describes this. This will be up on the screen for you. He says the hardest part of dealing with our materialism or money sickness, greed, that whole thing. One of the hardest parts about that is that it has become so much a part of us. Like people who have lived in darkness for many years, we have been removed from the light so long that we don't know how dark it really is. Many of us have never known what it is is like not to be materialistic. We've never known what it's, it's not like to be in the middle of that. This is why, this is the point, this is why we need so desperately to read the scriptures, to like see what God says in the Bible about money and possessions. If we were to gain God's perspective, even for a moment, and we and were to look now after gaining his perspective, we were to look at the way we go through life accumulating and hoarding and displaying our things we would have the same feelings of horror and pity that any sane person has when he views people in an asylum endlessly beating their heads against the wall. Now, Selah on that. He's saying that we are so like in this thing that it makes it impossible to recognize it. And if we could just step back and see for a second what the Bible says and like be pulled out of our cultural fog in this area for a moment to see what the Bible says, that it, we would have the same sort of a feeling that you would have if you walked into an asylum with, where everybody in this asylum is beating their heads against the wall. So, so here's the problem in our culture. Everyone is beating their head against the wall to the point that beating your head against the wall feels normal. This is why we so desperately need to like be reoriented around what the Bible says about these things. And here's the third preface. I'm going to ask you before we even start this, just to check your heart. I've been doing ministry long enough to know that when, when it's announced that we're about to talk about money and possession, that it bothers a lot of people in the room. That there's instantly like this frustrated feeling, cynical feeling that starts. And so if that's you, I'd want to press on a couple of things. First, I would love for you to ask your own heart why that is. Why are you bothered by that? And let me press it one step further and ask it this way. I think it would be helpful if you would frame it and ask yourself this question. If you came in the doors this morning and your goal and your pursuit in life, what you were wanting to do in your life was worship God with everything you have, including the money and possessions that God has given you. If that was the goal of your life, do you think that you would be bothered when you hear this announced? We're, tr- we're going to try this morning to learn what the Bible says about these things. I don't think you would be. I don't think you would be bothered. I actually think you would be eager if that was your posture. But see, here, okay, now hear this. What makes sermons on greed so hard to hear, listen, is greed. 
You know what I'm saying? What makes sermons on money sickness so hard to hear is that we are money sick. See, when, when, when money and possessions have set themselves in the place of God in our life, in other words, they have become what the Bible would call an idol. We are looking to, to those, to money and possessions to give us what only God can. When that happens, when money and possessions become an idol, here's what we all start to do with any of our idols. We instantly start to protect them and anything that would threaten that idol. We instantly get claws out. We don't like that. It bothers us. It frustrates us. So in light of that, let, let me just encourage you to check your heart. Like money sickness, one of the things that it will do when, in a moment like this, is start to, like this little voice will start to run that sounds like this. All they really care about is my money. All they really want from us is, is our money. And listen, if that's the voice that is happening in your soul, in your head right now, just know the tentacles of that are reaching down into a heart that is money sick. So, so can we just all check our hearts right now? Let me just assure you that we are not after something from you. We are primarily after something for you, namely freedom from the love of money. But I want that for you. I want that for me. I want it for our church family. I would love, I'm praying that God would give us a measure of freedom in this area. Okay. So with those prefaces out of the way, let's jump in. We're in uh, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. It's this encounter between Jesus and this rich young ruler. So here, here's how it starts in verse 17. And as he, talking about Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man. And Luke calls this man both rich and a ruler. So this man is, is all of those things. He's young, he's rich, and he's a ruler. So a man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the passage is really about that question. How is it that, that we're saved? How is it that we're made right with God? And it uses several different ways to express the same thing. In verse 17, it frames it in the context of eternal life. In verse 23, 24, and 25, it frames it in kind of the phrase of entering the kingdom of God. In verse 26, it uses the idea of what is, how, like, how are we saved? All of those words are used to say the exact same thing. How are we to be made right with God? How are we to be saved? How are we to enter the kingdom of God? All saying the same thing, and that is the question of this passage that Jesus is going to clarify for us. And he's going to take this moment of this, this rich young man asking this question to teach us four really important things. So let me kind of work down through these four things that Jesus is going to teach us. And here's the first one. The first thing Jesus teaches us is he's teaching us about God. He's got some things he, that he wants us to know about the nature of God. So if you look at verse 18, Jesus answers this man with a question. The guy asks a question, Jesus responds with a question. And Jesus' question in verse 18 turns the conversation into the deep theological waters of what do you think and believe about God? What do you think about God? That, that's where the conversation is going. So look at verse 18. And Jesus said to him, so he's just asked, how, how do I get saved? How do I get eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That's an interesting way to respond, isn't it? So, so here is part of what Jesus is, is kind of working through here. First of all, let me clarify this. In the Bible, there is a way of talking about relative goodness between people. So there is a way in the Bible about saying this person is good, that person is not good. Like, so let's just think about it in terms of like, if we're comparing Hitler and Mother Teresa, we're all saying Mother Teresa is better than Hitler, but it's, a, it's all in a relative sense. So it's, it's good, but it's in a little g good sense. It's relative goodness. In other words, we're all in the category of rebellious. There's just some of us that are less rebellious than others. But there is a way in the Bible of talking about relative goodness, that person's goodness as opposed to that person's goodness. But what Jesus is clarifying here is that in a big G goodness sense, not in a relative goodness sort of a way of talking about it, but in an absolute goodness way of talking, that there is only one being that is good. It's not you. It's not me. That one being is God. Like in the Bible, like, so let's just think about the psalmist. There is only one person that the psalmist says stuff like this about. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Give thanks for everything, for the Lord is good. There's only one sort of good like that, and that good is God. 
So, so in essence, Jesus is saying here, Hey, um, I know you just called me good, but don't, don't call me good until you're ready to call me God. Because there's only one that's really good and it's God. So, so he, that's the point here. He's clarifying who God is. Now here's the implication of that though. Every time we get a growing sense and a deeper awareness of who God is good, we also see who we are not. If God is good, we start to realize, wow, we're not God and we're not good. It's like, that's what good is. We're not that. See, like in the Bible, when it's talking about ultimate goodness, so we're out of relative goodness world and now we're into big G absolute goodness world. There's really two categories that would describe like this absolute goodness sort of a a way of thinking that there is sinless and there is sinful. And, and Jesus is saying there is only one person, only one being who is sinless, God. All the rest of us were in the sinful category. And Jesus is trying to help this guy see that by pointing him to the Ten Commandments. Look at verse 19. Jesus is trying to help this guy see, here's who God is, this is who you are. Verse 19, he says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. He's helping this guy see that there is only one good being in an ultimate sense. That good being is God. And just look at your life in comparison to that, Jesus is saying, you're not that good. And now watch verse 20. And, and the, this rich young ruler said to Jesus, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Never underestimate your ability to be totally self-deceived. I'm talking like totally self-deceived. I just want to ask his mom that, right? If my kid ever says that to you, call him a liar right now, right? Come on, are you serious? See, Jesus is pointing this man to the Ten Commandments to help him see him. To help him see that he cannot earn favor before God. If he is, if he's depending on his doing to make him right before God, it's a hopeless cause. Okay, now let me just apply this for a second. If you cut it to its core, the truth is, is that almost every person on the planet believes there's a God out there. And almost every person on the planet at the end of the day is banking on their doing or their good behavior to tilt the scales of God's favor in their direction. And part of what Jesus is trying to clarify for this young man and all of us in the room is your doing and your good behavior will never tilt the favor or God's favor in your direction. It will never do that. Your doing and your behavior are always going to condemn you before God. They're never going to earn you favor and grace before God. See, when Jesus is pointing this man to the Ten Commandments, here's what he's trying to show this man. He's trying to show them who God is, perfect, sinless, good, and who you are, rich young ruler, and who we are, rebellious, imperfect, not good. In the ultimate sense. And by pointing us to the Ten Commandments, it's not just here's God and here's you. The Ten Commandments are also a way for Jesus to point us to our need for a Savior. See, he's saying to this man, here's God, here's you. There's a problem there. Hence, you really do need me as your Savior. Like, you've got to have me or it's hopeless. Like, you've got to have me who spans the gap between God's goodness and your sinfulness. You have got to have me as your Savior who can walk you into a right relationship with God. You've got to have me for that. Your behavior will never do it. This is what he's showing him. He's teaching him about God here. Now, here's the second thing that Jesus is teaching us. Jesus is warning about the danger of wealth. He is warning us about just how dangerous wealth is. So, so watch what happens in verse 21. This guy has just asked the question, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus starts talking about money. He takes the conversation to a really unexpected place. Look at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, this rich young ruler, Jesus loved him. Gosh, I love that statement. He loved him. And he said to him, out of an expression of love for this man, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. 
and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. That's the same word used for Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane when he's in sorrow. This man is grieved. He went away grieved. Why? Because or for. Here's the reason. He had great possessions. Okay, let me clarify. Jesus is not teaching salvation through generosity or salvation through giving. Salvation is always through grace. But here is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is putting a finger on this man's idolatry and he is warning us of the dangers of money and possessions. Like Jesus' point here is this to this man. When, when the grace of God that leads to salvation is working in the human heart, here's what it does. That grace that leads to salvation stirs up in a human being a willingness to let go of everything and anything that stands between them and Jesus. That when the grace of God that leads to salvation is stirring in a person, it leads to, in this person's life, it leads to a willingness to let go of everything that stands between them and Jesus, including money and possessions. So here's the other side of that. He's saying to this rich young man, if you can't do that, it's saying something. That we've got a problem here. If money and possessions are still between me and you, it means that there is not the sort of grace that's leading to salvation. It means that we've got an idol, that we have an issue here. And that's exactly where this man is. There is something between he and God that he will not give up to get Jesus. And that's the problem. And Jesus is using this moment to warn the rich young ruler, the disciples, and us of the danger of wealth and money and possessions. Maybe you can think of it this way. This passage is a warning. It's it's trying to like sound the alarm. It's it's screaming to all of us, be aware of money's unique power to separate you from God. Be aware of that. Know that. It's got unique power to do that. I love how um, John Wesley in his biography, this is the Methodist founder guy, right? John Wesley. He, He makes this observation in his biography. He says, our Methodists, so the people that are, you know, getting saved here, our Methodists, they, they keep getting saved, like they, they meet Jesus, and then they stop getting drunk. And then they start getting a job, and they start working really hard, and then they get rich and wealthy, they, they, they start getting stuff. And then their heart grows prideful and cold toward God. And that is exactly what Jesus is warning against. Money's unique power to do just that. I mean, maybe you should just ask yourself the question here. Why is it that the Bible talks so much about money and possessions? 2,350 verses on money and possessions throughout the Bible. 15% of all the things Jesus says. Like the Bible talks more about money and possessions than if you were to combine faith and prayer, double them, it talks more about money and possessions than that. 16 of the 40 parables that Jesus gives are on money and possessions. Peter talks about it. Paul talks about it. John talks about it. James talks about it. Virtually every biblical author talks about money and possessions. Why is that? Why is the Bible so soaked in this conversation? These sort of warnings. Why is that? Here's the reason. If you just want it in a quick, succinct statement. The reason the Bible talks so much about that is because, listen, God loves you and he is acutely aware that, that money has this unique power. He is uniquely aware that, that money is this ruthless competitor for the affection of your soul. For the affection of your heart. That money is a unique and ruthless competitor for that. This is why there is so much talk about money and possessions. God is well aware of how quickly money can become a godlike thing in our life. Where this good thing becomes a God thing. Where we begin to look to it for for only the things that God could give us. See, money has this unique voice. It's a uniquely seductive voice. That it whispers these sort of hollow promises that feel and sound so believable in the moment like this. If you really want to be okay, do you know what you need? More of me. If you're ever going to be happy in your life, do you know what you really need? More of me and what I can give you. 
If you're ever going to, if you're ever going to be secure in your life, if you're ever going to have the security that you crave, you know what you really need? Me. That's what you need. Money has a unique voice that is extraordinarily seductive in that moment. And Jesus knows that. This is why he's warning against it. This is why he's, he's screaming at the top of his lungs, beware of money's seductive power. See, this is the problem of this young man. This, is, this whole seductive thing with money is playing out in his life. And when it came down to crunch time, when the decision had to be made between his stuff and Jesus as a savior, he chose his stuff because his stuff was his savior. This is the problem with money and possessions. It so easily becomes our savior. And church family, and just let me have a pastoral moment here. This, this moment of him walking to his money and away from Jesus, this is a well-worn path. And the truth is, many of us right now are walking it. Many of us right now are walking down this path and we don't even know it. Like what, what this passage is pressing to the forefront is this. And just hear this warning. This is a hard truth for all of us to hear. But the more we have... The more we accumulate, the more we hoard, the more we have in terms of money and possessions, the more likely it is when and if Jesus asks us to walk away from everything that we have, the more likely it is that we will walk away from Jesus. The more we have, the more likely it is that when Jesus says, hey, sell it all, let go of it all, the more likely it is that in that moment, just like this rich young ruler, we will walk away from Jesus and we will walk to our money and possessions. And so, like we all kind of intuitively know that, right? Like if, if all you owned was a $50 tent from Walmart, a couple of packages of ramen noodles, a beat up bike and some hand-me-down clothes, if Jesus comes and says, hey, let go of it all, that's pretty simple, isn't it? But you just start getting nice stuff, nice cars, nice homes, a bunch of nice things. You get used to eating a bunch of nice food. And you know what's really hard? That, that complicates everything in that moment, doesn't it? That becomes really difficult to let go of then. And this is what Jesus is warning of. This is the problem of the rich young ruler. Jesus is warning us that we need to be aware of this. That, that how you treat money, what you, what you think about money, what you desire to do with money can eternally make you or break you. That's how serious this is. Okay, now let me clarify this, and then we're going to read verse 23. In the Bible, money is talked about in two ways. One as a blessing from God, and one as an absolute danger. It's in both of those, and we need to feel both of those things. That it is, can be a blessing, but it is also strife with danger. Just read 1 Timothy 6, read Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 19. You're going to see it all throughout the Bible, the dangers of wealth. That, that not only is it a blessing, but it's dangerous. It's deceptive. And listen to this. For many of us in the room, like right here, sitting right here this morning, for many of us in the room, it is going to be eternally deadening for us. Eternally deadly for us. This is how dangerous money and possessions are. Okay, now to see that, watch what Jesus says in verse 23. This is how spiritually dangerous money and possessions are. Verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples. So this is just after this man has chosen his stuff over Jesus as Savior. He looked at his disciples and says this. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Selah. How difficult that's going to be. Now we need to be careful here because here's one of the problems with greed and money sickness and money in general. We always compare ourselves up the ladder. So when it, it says wealth here, the only thing you need in your life to convince yourself that you're not what the Bible is talking about when it says wealthy is to know one person more wealthy than you. That's all you need. And you'll convince yourself that you're in the poor category. Okay, just, man, I, I hope that by the grace of God, this lands on the room. We are all wealthy. 
You live in America, first of all. And if you're like, have a car you're driving home with, you have a house that you're going to live in, a bed you're going to sleep in tonight. If you have like food in the fridge, you have a little wardrobe in your closet, you get to pick clothes from. If that's you, you are in the category of what the Bible would call wealthy, not poor. That is virtually every one of us in the room. This warning right here does not go for a select few in the room. It is going for all of us in the room. Now feel that. Jesus is looking at this room and saying, do you know how difficult it's going to be for you to enter the kingdom of heaven? Okay, now watch verse 24 and 25 because it gets worse. And the disciples were amazed at his words because Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then he gives this illustration for just how difficult it is. Verse 25, it is easier For a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person like you and like me, like all of us, than for us to enter the kingdom of God. Selah, just take a moment to think on that. Allow that to like soak into your soul for a minute. Jesus just took the biggest thing, like the biggest object in in their time and place, and he took the smallest thing. And he said, you see how difficult it would be to put that camel through that eye of the needle? It is easier to do that than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for you sitting in this room this morning to be a Christian. Hear that. This is the sort of serious warning Jesus is giving here. I mean, and I, I can't even describe last night as I'm reading this and just thinking over this and just thinking about my love for our church family, for all of us in the room. But I just can't even describe the burden I feel with this. Like if that's true, that has serious implications for us. And let me give you two reasons why I think it is true, why it's easier for a camel to go through the eye than need for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's the first one. Look at the preceding passage. It's what Valentine preached on last week, 13 through 16. Jesus says in this passage, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, here's how it's entered. You've got to become like a child. Do you know like the, uh, the dominant characteristic of a child? Here it is. Helplessness. Dependency. That's the dominant characteristic. See, there's really one thing you need to enter the kingdom of God. There's one thing you need to become a Christian. There's one thing you need to be saved. You know what it is? Nothing. And here's the problem. Wealth puts something in your hand. Wealth makes us come to God with something, not nothing. And when we come to God with something, it precludes us from getting everything from Jesus. See, this is the problem of wealth. It puts things in our hands as we come to God. When God is saying, no, I want nothing in your hands. But let me give you a different metaphor to to illustrate how difficult and why money and possessions make it so difficult for us. I want you to picture, like, we'll use the metaphor of rock climbing. Have you ever had that moment where you're inside, like, maybe one of these indoor, like, rock climbing facilities, and you've been climbing, and you get to the top of the wall, and you know that moment when you look down, and you're like, oh my gosh, if I fall, I'm going to die. Like, that moment. It's really scary when you get up to the top, right? But what has to happen? At the top of the wall is that decisive moment when you've got to let go of the wall. And the wall feels so sturdy and so like, if I just keep a hold of this, I'm going to live. The wall feels so secure. And it's that moment at the top of the wall where we've got to let go of what feels so secure to us. And we've got to lean back on this little tiny little sliver of a rope and trust that that's going to save us. Now that is a great metaphor for what it means to become a Christian. It is letting go of all of these things like money and possessions that feel so secure. Like they're going to give us what we want. If we just hold on to this, we're going to be okay. And what becoming a Christian is, is letting go of all of those things and falling back onto the rope of Jesus, trusting him to catch us. But see, for this rich young man, he had built all of his life around that wall of money and possessions. And when he got to the top, this decisive moment, he had so patterned his heart and life to believe that the wall of wealth is where it's at, that when the decisive moment came, he could not let go. 
Now just feel that in here. That is what so many of us are doing. We have conditioned our heart to really believe that money and possessions are going to make our life okay. And it's keeping us in the decisive moment of Jesus or our stuff. It is keeping us from letting go of our stuff so we can have Jesus. So let me apply this in a couple of different ways, just really briefly. First, let me apply it from this angle of like how to help us see this. Maybe a good place to start would just be to ask yourself the question, are you content? Are you content? Here's what contentment is in the Bible. It's, it's having a heart that is satisfied in Jesus regardless of what you have or don't have. Are you content? Or are you discontent? Here's what discontent looks like. Give me Jesus and that new thing. Give me Jesus and that, then I'll be okay. Give me Jesus and those four things over there, this new thing, that thing, that new house. This, give me that stuff too, and then I'll be all right. Just ask yourself, are you content? See, discontentment is rooted in money sickness. It's rooted in greed. It's, it's rooted in covetousness. Really believing that if we can get something other than Jesus, then we'll be okay. Are you content? Here's the second thing. Just to, just to maybe help get our eyes thinking about how idolatry and how money sickness, all this stuff plays out in our life. Just take a quick look at your life. Because whatever we idolize, whatever we are looking to in our life other than Jesus to make us okay, to give us the security and the satisfaction, whatever we're looking on for, you know, banking on to to make us happy in life, whatever that thing is, if it's something other than Jesus, it's an idol. And here is one of the telltale signs of an idol. When you have an idol in your life, you will always sacrifice more important things to get it. You'll always... Be willing to sacrifice more important things as long as you can just have that thing. So this is the reason that so many dads will make their wives a widow and orphan their kids as they chase their true love, money. Right? And it's not just that we'll let go, you know, of of more important things like family to get our true love. We'll also let go of things like God to get that true love of money. Just like the rich young ruler, when it comes down to choosing between our stuff or Jesus as a savior, we'll choose our stuff because it has become our savior. And the more you have, the more likely it is that that will be true for you. The more alluring those things become, the more trustworthy they feel. Just hear those warnings in our, in our life right now, what Jesus is giving us. And then let me come at it lastly from this angle. I just try to apply this really briefly. In Luke 12, 15, Jesus says this. He tells us, commands us to be on guard against money sickness, against greed, against covetousness. Be on guard against that. So in one sense, he's saying you need to set up boundaries around your life. You need to be protecting these sorts of things in your life. You need to make sure you're aware of what your heart is doing in terms of money and possessions. Be on your guard. And then when you see it in your life, money sickness, you've got to proactively seek to put those things to death. You've got to proactively work against those things to deaden those things in your life. Okay, now this is one of the reasons that the Bible talks so much about sacrificial generosity. That one of the best ways you can guard against greed and put greed and money sickness to death in your heart. One of the best ways you can do that is to give sacrificially. For your generosity to be sacrificial. And okay, so listen, we're not talking about just giving like a little tip there, right? We're talking about giving in such a way that it cuts into your life. Like there are some things that you cannot do because you are giving like this. That's sacrificial generosity. And the reason the Bible pushes not for a percent in your life, but for sacrificial generosity in your life is because every time you give sacrificially, you are reminding your heart that your life is not found in money and possessions in the abundance of things. Your security, your satisfaction, your significance is not found there, but in God. Every time you give sacrificially, you're reminding your heart of that. So these would be wonderful things for you to talk about in the context of your family, with your kids, with your spouse, in your home group. Where is contentment? How is idolatry wrapping around money and possessions? What does sacrificial generosity look like in our life? And those are things we've got to get like clarity on in our life. 
Jesus is warning here about, about the danger of money and possessions. And here's the third and fourth thing. He's going to be quick here. Number three, Jesus is teaching us about the miracle of salvation. The miracle of salvation. Look at verse 26. He's just clarified it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's harder for that to happen than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And then he says this in verse 26. And they, talking about his disciples, were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who in the world can be saved? If that guy can't be saved, who can? Now, let me give you a quick background note. Part of their just being amazed in this moment is rooted in a couple of misconceptions. It would have been very common in first century Jewish world to feel and to believe this. That whoever God favored, he would always make that person wealthy. So wealth and riches always tied to the blessing of God. Now, in one sense, that can be true. The Bible does talk about wealth and riches as gifts from God. But here's the problem. They tied those things perfectly together. In other words, if you were wealthy, it meant you were blessed by God and favored by God. That is wrong. If you look back in the history of like the world, right, you're going to see a lot of really wealthy people that God has gifted with a lot of wealth that were really terrible people. God's favor and God's blessing is not a one-to-one relationship with wealth. It doesn't work that way. So, but that, that kind of presupposition led the disciples to think this, that guy is blessed by God because he's wealthy. And if that guy who is blessed by God cannot become a Christian, cannot enter the kingdom of God, what hope is there for normal people like us? If that guy can't get in, we've got no shot of getting in. Now watch how Jesus responds to that that feel that that kind of working assumption in verse 27. And by the way, verse 27 is really the answer to the rich young ruler's question. How do I inherit eternal life? This is how people inherit eternal life. Verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, this thing we're talking about, salvation, entering the kingdom of God. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Here's what he's saying. If you are a Christian, if you're a son or daughter of God, do you know why that is? It is an absolute miracle of grace. That is the only way rich people enter the kingdom of God. It's the only way anyone enters the kingdom of God. It is through an absolute intervention of God where God comes in, melts our resistance, pulls us off the wall, pulls us back onto the rope of Jesus as Savior. That is the only way anyone's a Christian. It is purely by grace. Think about maybe a neighbor or a friend or a family member that's not a Christian. And if you're in the room and you are a Christian, can I just tell you the only reason you're a Christian and they aren't, it's not because you're like somehow smarter than them and you get things quicker than them, or you're just kind of have a little more sensitive heart than they do. That is not the reason. The only reason you are a Christian is the grace of God. That's it. So maybe that can just encourage us this morning. First, maybe we could just hear that freshly today. That, that if you're in the family of God, you have been the recipient of unbelievable grace. And maybe that can encourage us as we're praying for people around us that just seem too far gone. They just seem like it's hopeless. There's no way this would ever happen. Can we just be reminded that Jesus loves to do miracles? He loves to do what we can't. And even this person's salvation that seems so far gone, it's possible with a God who when he flexes, all things can happen. Maybe we could just be encouraged by that. He's teaching about the nature of salvation, the miracle of salvation. And then lastly, number four, Jesus is showing us why sacrifice makes sense. Why it is that sacrifice makes sense in the kingdom of God. So look at verse 28. Peter said to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. That is what every Christian, that that is the story of every Christian. For every Christian, there is a letting go of everything between you and Jesus to follow him. That's what it means to be a Christian. He goes on, verse 29. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left. And this is just a sampling of the things that could stand between you and Jesus that have to be let go of. There is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands like money and possessions for the sake, for my sake and for the gospel. 
So just see the implication there. He's saying that becoming a Christian means that everything between you and Jesus, it is willing, you're willing to let go of those things if those things are between you. That if Jesus says, let go of them, that you do it. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. This is what it looks like. And so and notice what he says there. He's, he uses like things like houses. Maybe we just should be reminded this morning that some of us are just way too attached to our house. Just way too attached to things. And he goes on, he talks about family. See, for some people, family can operate just like money. It's not an inordinate desire for things and material things. It's an inordinate desire to keep like family right near you and close to you. That can just as easily be an idol. And it meant like it's the good things that most oftentimes becomes the God things in our life. Like the best of things are those things that you will most likely try to depend on to give you what only God can. And Jesus is saying, listen, all those things are in open hand. Like part of what it means to follow me is all those things look like this in your hand. Okay, now that leads to the question though, if it costs everything, not just money and possessions, but if it costs everything being in an open hand, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone follow Jesus? Here's the answer. Look at verse 30. So you who have given up all of these things, money, possessions, houses, families, all of these sort of things, here's why that is worth it. Verse 30. You've given those things up. Here's the promise. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? That everything you give up now will be made up 100 fold. I hear that. This is why sacrifice makes sense. Everything you give up now in the cause of Jesus, everything you give up now will be made up 100 fold. Now, let's just put that in economic language. That is a 10,000% return on your investment. You give it now, you invest it into the kingdom of God now, you're willing to give up those things now, 10,000% return. And then he uses two time frames to talk about that in. He says, now, in this age, in other words, that return will be applicable for the here and now. That there are present day rewards for following Jesus. That there are present day benefits to following Jesus. Yes, it will be costly, but now in this age, in this time, in your life, it will, your return on that investment, what you've given up in this life will be a 10,000% return. Uh, Maybe you can say it this way. At the end of our life, there will never be one Christian. If they're seen clearly, there will not be one Christian who could look back over their life and say this. I have given more than Jesus has given back. He's saying that it is impossible to outgive God. What you give in the sake of of gospel and kingdom expansion, what you give, 10,000% return in this life, he is saying. And that that doesn't mean that like you put $10 in the plate this week, you get 20 bucks. It doesn't mean that. It's going to be shroffed with persecution as well. But it means that every person, every Christian, every son or daughter of God, when you're looking back over your life, we will all say when we're seeing clearly, God has given me so much more than I ever thought about giving him. And, And then he says, it's not just the in this age, you know, thing. It is also in the age to come. The Bible is clear that history is, um, it's not going to be a smooth line. There's going to be a great disturbance out there when you either die or Jesus comes back where you're going to find yourself right before the God of the universe. And in light of that, there is no more important question than how do you inherit eternal life? There's no bigger question. In that moment, the most tragic thing that could happen for you is you not knowing and loving Jesus. And the best thing that could happen to you in that moment is you knowing and loving Jesus. It's the most important thing. But here's what Jesus is saying now. He is saying, for every one of you who have given up stuff now in following me, here's what you can know about eternal life. Here's what you can know about that. It will all be made up for 100 fold, 10,000% return on your investment. It will be made up for like that. This is what he's getting at in verse 21 when he says, you could lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. He is saying that if you choose now to temporarily forsake something, Here's what you can know about that. You deny yourself something now. You can know this. You temporarily deny it now. You get to enjoy it a hundredfold for all of eternity. Are you hearing that? If we believe that, think about how that would alter how we think about money and possessions. 
Or maybe we can take it out of money and possession language and just talk about the painful path of following Jesus. For every tear you shed on the painful path of following Jesus, every heartache, every disappointment, for every tear you shed, there will not be one of those wasted in the long-term kingdom of God. Every one of those tears will be bottled up. And here's what you can know for all eternity. 10,000% return on those tears that you get to enjoy for all eternity. All of those tears now, temporary tears now, bottled up and turned into eternal joy later. As for every son and daughter of God, this is why extreme sacrifice makes such extreme sense in the kingdom of God. And I'll land the plane with this. In verse 21, it's interesting. Jesus looked at this rich young ruler and it says that he loved him. He had compassion on this rich young ruler. And to to get a sense of why that is, you've got to put this particular story in the wider story of the Bible. And when you do that, here's what you see. That in one sense, when Jesus is looking at this rich young ruler, do you know what he's seeing? A picture of himself. Like in the wider story of the Bible, here's what the Bible would tell us. That ultimately, Jesus is the rich young ruler. At this point, he's 31 years old. and, And the Bible says he was extremely wealthy. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says that Jesus left all of his wealth, all of his, his riches in heaven for the rags of a stable, for the poverty of this place called earth. He left all of that as the rich young ruler to come here to live among us and to ultimately be nailed to the cross for our sin. I love how one pastor said it. There is a sense in the wider storyline of the Bible That Jesus has given us his big all as the rich young ruler. So that now us, all of us little rich young rulers here, now we can all give Jesus our little all. See, it's when we see that Jesus has given his big all as the rich young ruler that enables us to give our little all. It it, it allows us, when we see Jesus as the rich young ruler that came and perfectly lived out the commandments of God in our place, died on the cross for our sin, risen from the dead on the third day, it's when we see Jesus like that, that money just becomes money. Houses just become houses. Things just become things. When we start to see Jesus like that, the things that we have don't have us. I mean, this is what I'm praying for all of us, right? that there would be a measure of freedom like that among our church family. So let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.